God gets life, and uh, that's really good. We've been jumping into just a brand new series here for a couple weeks. It's called Church Matters. Well, let me find a different place for that. And it comes out of a core text of John chapter 17. And I'll be honest with you, it's really been challenging personally for me as I've been digging into this passage. And, and, and I recognize even that it's a bit heavier in terms of kind of the theology and the doctrine of it. But let me begin again this week by just reading this passage. Maybe my hope is that we read this enough, we'll actually begin to memorize it even together. But John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, and I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And again, this is a a bit heavier stuff, but we need to go deeper here. This prayer is praying for us to become this term one. And last week we pointed out there's a connection actually between being made in the image of God And this idea of oneness, and and it's really the context is this, is that as being image bearers of God, we are representatives, we represent God, and we represent what God is like to a world. And God, when we think of that term, is about a relationship between the Father and the Son. They are one, and we represent that. We become an expression of, of who God is to the world. So as a church moves toward oneness, we're revealing the character of God to people around us. But let me begin by putting on that verse on the screen. This is from the New Living Translations, and I just kind of want to walk through this again, just kind of for review. But look how it goes. I pray that you will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, that they may be in us. Second prayer request there, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Now let me put kind of the order on the screen for you again. And just as we reflect God, when the church is characterized by oneness, and when the church is characterized by moving toward together toward God in communion with the Father and the Son, the result is that reflection where people in this world believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. And I don't know if we really stop and ponder the weight of this prayer that he prayed for us just the night before he went to the cross. But you notice that last phrase, that that oneness isn't just about us. At times I think we think of that, that oneness really is for our benefit. But it's more than that. The benefit is to those in the world that are seeing God through us. Now here's where, as I ponder this, I, I think maybe a question could, we, could get asked, and it's this. Is it just possible that the ineffectiveness of churches today to make a difference in our culture, influencing our culture for Christ, might be 
that we just have never developed the oneness that the Father and the Son have. And we're not reflecting that back into the world. So the title of the sermon today, I said it this way, is oneness really that important? Now let me dig in here by just putting a couple words on the screen to show you an illustration here. If I put the terms evangelism training on the screen and I announce that Tuesday night we're going to get together and we're going to do evangelism training, what would be the first things that would often come to your mind? Wouldn't it be this? We're going to learn how to do the Romans road or we're going to do the four spiritual laws or we're going to learn the words of how to share the gospel or, or maybe to build the bridges even with our community, the lost. And none of them are wrong and we're called to give a defense even with words. But catch this. What if our relationships with one another would actually speak louder than the words of the gospel. Then sharing the four spiritual laws. People would look at a body like us and begin to say, they are really different in a good way. See, see what if people in our community gave us the reputation? Man, they love each other. Wouldn't we assume that that kind of a reputation would make us incredibly attractive to people? See, what if we would increase more and more and move in together, move into our relationship with the Father and the Son? We used a verse last week, I'm not going to put it on the screen, Philippians 2, where it says we become stars that shine in the universe and it holds out the words of life. Say, I've been pushing and pulling us toward this idea of this community of oneness. That's just like the Father and the Son's community, a deep love for each other. But let me try something else here to go farther. Maybe on your piece of paper or in your mind, when I say the word God, what are the first two attributes that come to mind? That just that fall off, that just go, oh, God, bing, bing. See, I, I think when we ask that question, oftentimes we'll use the word powerful. Anybody use powerful? Yeah, a few of you. Creator, ruler. Anybody use love? A few of you use love. How about sovereign? Any of you use ideas? A couple of you put sovereign. Let me ask you a question. How many of you thought of the word triune to describe God? I don't think anybody would. How many of you would use the word community to describe God? Uh, go to work tomorrow. Tell them your pastor gave you an assignment. And you're supposed to, what are the two things that you think about when you hear this word God? And just use it as a bridge for a conversation even. And just listen and go, how would they describe who God is? You see, the challenge for us is that when we view God, do we see him as community? Do we see him as a triune God? Even that word, if I throw out the word Trinity, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And most of the time I think it's this. I can't understand it. Matter of fact, i got a quote, I think that kind of summarizes where a lot of people in the church today, when you hear the word Trinity, and this is referring to the Trinity, 
And one person said this, the Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, and the whole thing is incomprehensible. Something put in by theologians to make it more difficult and nothing to do with the daily life or ethics. So we look at a trinity, the, the trinity, and we go, there's nothing to do with the way we live our lives as we walk through every day. Why bother even studying it? But here's where we need to connect it to oneness. To be in communion with each other. To have a deep love for each other. Have a commitment to the welfare of each other within a church. Because when we do that, we are reflecting the Trinity. Do we believe that? Our oneness is actually reflecting who God is as a triune God. So in answering that, is, God, is oneness really important? If, if you're taking notes, I said it this way. Yes. Moving toward oneness within the church and together in our pursuit of Christ reflects the triune God, the Trinity. It reveals who he is. Now, I realize some of this is brand new, but even at, when you think of our oneness, the next time you read through the New Testament, just think of all the letters, the epistles that are written to the churches and dealing with these churches and how often they're dealing with unity, basically becoming one, and their pursuit of Christ together in pursuing him together. Over and over again in the epistles, it, it, it comes out this way. But you know, what gets in the sh- away? What gets in the, what blocks us from that? And I come back to what we said last week, oftentimes our independence, our belief that we can have a faith that's just Jesus and me. We buy into that. But this concept of rather than Jesus and me, it's Jesus and us. Do do we really believe that? Do we see the weight of our responsibility in that? Whether you're a high school student or an older person, there's a responsibility toward other people to become one. And it demands that we look around and go, the person that's sitting next to us, we may not know them, and a recognition that we are called to even become one with those people that we do not know. See, the Trinity reveals community, and we are to reveal that. I came across a quote by a gal by the name of Catherine Lacugna, and she said this, The heart of the Christian life is to be united with God of Jesus Christ by the means of communion with each other. The doctrine of the Trinity is ultimately, therefore, a teaching not about the abstract nature of God, nor about God in isolation from everything other than God, but it's a teaching about God's life with us and our life with each other. Now, I I probably at some point should dig farther in the Trinity, and it's a doctrine, I think, that we kind of put at the top shelf and never get to. And we need to probably dig more there. But as we step back and you go, okay, what's the question here? What's the issue with the Trinity? Let me throw you kind of a million-dollar question, an important question. When you think about God, do you see him primarily as a relational God? He's in relationship with the Father and the with Son and Spirit, that God. 
Or do we see him in the authority box? He's the ruler, he's the judge, he's the lawgiver. Is that how we define God? See, it makes a significant question in terms of what we emphasize about the life, even in the life of a church like ours. But let me continue on. I want to put up on the screen John 17, 24. And it's a verse we haven't read yet in this series. And look how it reads. Father, this is continuing his prayer for us. I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Now, just stop there a second. Doesn't that just soak of the idea that he wants to be in relationship with us? I want them to be with me where I am, where I am. And then look at the next phrase. Then they can see all the glory. When we're with him, we can see the glory that you gave me. What's that about? He wants us to be with him so we see how the Father and the Son work together. The Father is giving glory to the Son and he wants us to see that. And then look at the last phrase. Because you love me, even before the world began. That statement has a depth that I don't think we really realize. And that statement reveals much about the Trinity. Let me just dig a moment for you there. I I did this in the last series, Is Your God Too Small? Because it speaks so much about who God is. So, So to kind of throw it out there like this. Have you ever thought about God and who he was before creation? Think about nothing exists. There's no world, there's no stars, there's no universe. Nothing exists other than God. And you go, who is he? Who is God at that point? See, I think we get stuck and we go, well, God is holy. And that's who fundamentally is. But recognize this, holiness means to be set apart. If God is holy, did that apply before creation even came? And you go, no. Set apart from what? The only thing that existed was a triune God. God is sovereign. Before creation, sovereign over what? Nothing. God is a reigning king. There was no kingdom. See, see, what does it say about the triune God? Before you love me, before the foundation of the world. What's that just shouting out? It says this, that there was a union before creation came where the Father was loving the Son before anything was created. There was a relationship before anything was created. And by the way, he didn't need creation. They had a sustaining love relationship with each other. The Father, Son, and the Spirit And their relationship was marked by oneness. And oneness existed before time even began. And he prays for us that we would be like that. 
We would be marked by oneness as a body of believers in complete fellowship, just like he was before the foundation of the world even existed. Uh, you see, God in, its, in his triunus, he's not a lonely God. He has divine communion. It's a community. And he prays for us that we would be just like that. But here is where we begin to rationalize. Well, that's God. That's the Trinity. We can never do that. We're deeply sinful, aren't we? No one can be perfect like that, you know. Listen, when that begins to creep in, that we rationalize because that's God. And, and the, the first question, why would, then he, why would he have prayed for us this prayer? But when that creeps in and we begin to go, no, I don't think this can happen. Here's what I think we begin to do. We create a ranking of how we should relate to people and which relationships are most important. And we do this. It goes like this. You know what? I know that God is supposed to come first, so I'm going to first concentrate on God, and he will be number one. I'm going to put all my energy, I'm going to make sure that that's happening in my life. But then we start another rating, and we start going, well, you know what? I'm supposed to be one with my wife, so my wife is going to be number two, and then my kids are going to be number three, and then, oh yeah, maybe the, the church will be number four, and those other people down the line, we, we, four, five, six, kind of fill in the blank there. Uh, when we do this, well, let me, I want you to hear this closely. Jesus never advocated a rating system like that. You can't find it in Scripture. You can't find it in Scripture. You've got to cherry-pick Scripture in order to support it. Matter of fact, let me just put a very difficult passage that we don't really like up on the screen from Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus was talking about relationships and even earthly ones. Look at what it says. And while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and his brothers that were stood outside wanting to speak to him. Now the crowd assumed he was supposed to go out and spend time with them because they came first. And someone told him, your mother's and brother are standing, wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And then he points to his disciples. He says, here's my mother, my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. We don't like this text. You know what? I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. And, but we like the simplicity of creating a ranking system of one, two, three, four. And can I be brutally honest with you why we like to rank and create a ranking system? It's this. We can justify in our own minds, and this is me, we can justify in our own minds that because I don't put any energy toward three, four, and five, I'm still okay. 
it's okay. Jesus didn't rank. He, he, he sidestepped it. Matter of fact, l- let me go even farther with you on this issue of no ranking. Look at Matthew 22, 36 through 40. This is the great commandment. And, and this was an aha for me this week. I have to confess this. This is something that I, maybe you knew it and I didn't. But look how it reads in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the, the prophets. Here's how I assume that it was and the way it should have been applied. I assume that it was really a ranking system here. That God was first, loving others were second. But if you look at verse 39, the second is like it. And then verse 40, both of them, it depends on the law of the prophets. But the call to love others is not second place. Just because it's the second thing given here, it doesn't mean it is secondary. Let me show you this in the Living Translation from Mark chapter 12. They get it right. When you go back to the original languages, look at Mark 12 verse 31. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. What is it saying? Loving God. See, we think that should be rated first. But he's saying no. Loving God and loving other people are equal are equal. And we want to rate and say, well, I'll do God first, and then my wife second, and kids third, and then, you know, the church, and on and on and on. That's a hard reality for us. But let me go farther with a second point here today that's needed in our development, our faith. So number two there, is oneness really important? The answer, yes. Oneness fulfills the communal disciplines. A term you probably hadn't heard of before, kind of made it up here. But most of us, I've heard lots of sermons. You know, you come to Christ and, and we're supposed to then sit down. We need to spend time in the Bible every day. We need to do personal prayer. We need to do worship. We need to maybe even journal as a part of that, meditation. But let me show you kind of a different picture from Acts chapter 2. Look how it reads, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't know if you were at the concert last night. There's probably a few thousand people, I'm guessing, there. But just think of it this way. They start preaching. Peter starts preaching. And he gets up, and all of a sudden, 3,000 people accept Christ. We're going to follow Jesus. But do you know what Peter and John and the apostles did next? They, they sat them all down, and then they said, they, they were, they said we're going to help you with a personal spiritual growth plan. And what you need to do is, you're going to need to now take the Bible, which is the Old Testament then, and you're going to need to spend about 15, 20 minutes a day reading the Bible, and then you're going to spend some time praying together, and then you're going to do some sing some songs and hymns to, you know, to God, and then, and then you're going to start a prayer journal. Okay, tongue-in-cheek a bit. But you notice something here. They didn't race home to have a quiet time and start work on their personal spiritual disciplines. I think it's fair to assume that none of those would have been explicitly even taught at that time. Do you know what happened? They jumped into the communal disciplines. And look at what they are. I'll list some for you. The first one there, baptism. Remember, baptism is a public proclamation that says, I am a follower of Jesus. Now, some of you have never done that. If, if you, I'd love to see more people baptized. It's a saying, I'm devoted to Jesus. But you notice that it didn't stop there. That second bullet there, they gathered together for learning. See, they came together and they, they kept, teach us more, tell us more. Who is this Jesus guy? We're going to learn more about him together. But they didn't even stop there with the teaching. They added fellowship. That next bullet, they gathered because of their commonality, was now following Jesus together. That word is koinonia. It literally means to have something in common. That's kind of that idea there. And there's this gathering then because of the commonality of them being in Christ together. It was shared relationships. And then scripture tells us they did more than that. They started breaking bread together, which is probably communion, and they began praying together. For the next bullet, I said it this way. They gathered to remember and pray. Pray together as a group. See, this is a communal discipline, being in the same place, taking communion, praying together. But it didn't stop there. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had a need. For the bullet, I said it this. They took care of each other. This was a discipline they began to do as a body. The discipline of taking care of each other ran deep. They were selling their possessions, their land, to take care of one another. Didn't even stop there. Verse 46, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. That next bullet, they're worshiping together and eating together in each other's homes. 
these thousands of people, we can assume they didn't necessarily know each other, but they were gathering together because they were now in Christ. They were gathering even in their homes, eating together. Now, I kind of wonder what they would have talked about those first few times. Do you see the importance of this? Of the community. This was where oneness was being developed of what Jesus prayed for. But let me give you another application from Acts 2 here. Kind of a a macro one, but number three there for your notes, I said it this way. Oneness gives evidence of a real conversion by the demonstration of a reorientation of one's life. To say it differently, life changed after they were converted. And it moved toward a community thing. Toward a real community with a real communion with Christ. See, this historical account, this conversion people's lives radically shifted after they were converted. And it was marked by oneness. And I think here's the tension in the American church. We keep thinking that community, coming together, is optional. We think that inviting each other into our homes is optional or only when convenient. Or that praying together is optional. That learning together is optional. That taking care of each other is optional or only when convenient. But you've got to notice one consequence of that. As they came together, when they reorientated their life, when they came together because of Christ, when oneness occurred, look at Acts 2.47. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What was taking place? People from the outside were seeing what was going on on the inside of this church and they were going, I want it. And they were coming and they were putting their faith and the Holy Spirit was working. But let me put up John 17 again, this prayer in John 17. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. See, as people live in community, as they pray together, as they ate meals together, as they took care of each other, they were becoming one. They were representing the Trinity, the triune God, and the Holy Spirit was pulling people into this community and it grew and it grew and it grew. And the challenge that we have is that the American church keeps thinking that people claim to be followers of Christ think that they don't have to be a part of a church. They believe that they can go out and sit out in the wilderness and worship God alone. And folks, that just, you don't see that in Scripture. Do we need to get alone with God to be refreshed? Absolutely. But there's this place where He calls us to come together. And to become one. We can't ignore those communal disciplines. I think the other ditch, if 
going out and staying away from the body of Christ is one ditch. I, I think there's another one. And the default kind of goes like this. I'm going to just look at church as a place for me to grow. It's for my faith. The church is to assist me in my individual spiritual journey. And you go, no. The writers of the New Testament understood that your faith is never detached from the body of Christ. So when I say that church matters, church is important in communion. But it's about people. It's about relationships. It's not about a building. A church isn't a building. It's not about a place, an address. It's about the people coming, reorientating their lives to live differently because they are saved by Christ. And they become one. And the fact is, for years and years, the church has taught that spiritual growth is about knowledge. It's about you know, discovering information in the scriptures. And it doesn't say in the great commandment, it's about loving God and loving people. Understand, spiritual maturity is deeply rooted in loving relationships, in deep community, in community with the Father and the Son, about loving relationships through and through. I'm going to stop. I know this stuff is a bit maybe new for some of you. It's a bit heavier. In weeks ahead, the next few weeks, i got to make it much more practical. I understand that. But, but here's how I'd encourage you maybe to leave today. Would you just ponder and ask the question, do I reorientate my life around the community? Or do we rate and say, you know what, my wife is number one, my family's number two, this is number three. And we stay in that rating system as our lives. See, God wants to change us. But he wants us to become a people where we're so reflecting oneness that the, that the world looks at it and begins to add day by day people wanting that and experience, and they meet Jesus in the midst of that community. Let's stand and pray.